Our next guest's career has spanned just shy of 60 years in the city, in which he's seen 14 prime ministers, the advent of the euro dollar market, the opening up of London as a major financial hub, the Big Bang, tax rates of over 80%, the tech boom, the global financial crisis, and much, much more. David Buick is a businessman, financial commentator, avid Fulham FC fan, nimble wicketkeeper, and is widely considered a true city legend. So sit back, relax, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Get money. Get money. One for the money. Three fifty dollars Swiss. Zorik, twenty-three. Two for the show. Two and eight sold. Three to get ready and born. Go. Welcome to Mavericks. David, you were born in Montreal. You uh, left school without A levels, and you started in the city in 1962. You've done your homework. I, ha I have indeed. Can you can you take us back to that time and give us a, a sense of what it was like to to join the city at that time? My father took me to. Um, a restaurant in the city of London, which is very well known for its fish. And he used to wear thick horn-rimmed glasses. And he had the same thing every time, which was brown Windsor soup, and then Dover sold chips and peas. His glasses were so steamed up, having got my A-level results for the third time of a failure. I didn't know if he was crying or whether it was just the steam from the brown Windsor soup. Anyway, this is a decent podcast listened by decent people, so the language is not worth repeating. He was absolutely incandescent with rage. And he said, I had great aspirations for you to be a corporate lawyer. And he said, now you're going to have to go merchant banking. Can you believe it? Today, well, without at least a 2-1 from university, you wouldn't even get across the threshold. So off I went to a bank that was not well known, except for those people in the city called Philip Hill Higginson Erlangers, which eventually merged with them um, M. Samuel. But Philip Hill was one of the big issuing houses of the day. And this, of course, as you will know, is only 18 years after the war ended. And when you came out of Moorgate, um, there were still bomb sites around when I went to work. And the second day I was at work, I arrived and I wore a pale blue shirt and a straight blue tie. And we had a wonderful office manager, Scotsman, who lost his leg at the Somme. Shows you how old I am. And he comes up to me and says in his broad Glaswegian accent, who told you to come to work in your pajamas. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, sir. He said, go home and change. So it was one of the six months to go back to Highgate. And I had to put on a stiff collar and a striped shirt and a plain blue tie. I got the message very quickly. But to answer your question, James, is it was the biggest learning curve of my life. I learned more in five years as a clerk than I earned in the other 55 years I spent in the city of London because you went round every department. Everybody assumed that you were not a monosyllabic congenital throwback, and you were treated accordingly. And so I did collections, I did bills of exchange, I did some corporate finance, I met Charles Claw. Can you imagine that, age 19? And I, he bought Lewis Investments for about £54 million, pounds, and I was sent down to Joseph Seabag to pick up the cheque of 52 million quid or whatever it was, and I ran back to Morgate, not realising that actually you could stop lost to the rest of it. But the learning curve was fabulous. And... I just enjoyed the fact that every time you picked up the Financial Times or the Telegraph or the Times and you opened it up in the business pages, there was an offer for sale of a new company that had come to the market. And in those days, of course, it's very different from what it did. You used to have to show a seven-year progress as a company before you were eligible to become public, whereas you know in AIM, particularly as uh, well briefed as you are, you, if you've got the right credentials, you get on straight away. And it was just a wonderful learning curve. And it was the fact that we didn't have technology. The time at Philip Hill, they just started to get a, a computer from Delarue. It was called a bull machine. It was about the size of this room. 
I had all it do was spew out paper every day, and everybody thought, oh, gracious me, we're all going to lose our jobs. Of course, little did we know that technology is going to rule our lives 60 years later. But it was just the access to people. And we always allowed that to function. I used to go down to, initially to Birch's Angel Court. And Birch's was it's like a Dickensian pub. It was on about four floors. And you used to be able to go in there with a three-shilling uh, luncheon voucher, which in those days was actually quite generous. My normal fare was steam, jam, roll, and custard, preceded by stone kidney pudding, chips, and peas, half a pint of beer, and I'd have sixpence to leave for the tip. And all the stockbrokers were there from Throbmorton Street, drinking their pink gins. People didn't drink wine. It's too expensive. So everybody drank hard stuff. So it was either gin or a little bit of whiskey or beer. And that was it. Wine was very expensive, you know, in a bottle of Mouton Cadet, which was the great fair of the day. In those days, it was very expensive. And it wasn't really wine drinking, really, didn't start till the 70s, where it became more or less affordable to the average person. But it was the gossip in these sort of pubs and the exchange of views and ideas. And as we know, I wasn't in the stock market in those days, but you knew damn well that information was being passed, you know, the week and the nod, best you get involved in this because I think it's not going to do you any harm type thing. And it wasn't really until Big Bang in 1986 when people said, no, you can't do that. Um, you know, that's now verboten. But that was the way it was. And it was what you knew uh, was not important, was who you knew. Was it, was it a popular career choice? I mean, you said, you said your father wanted, to be, wanted you to be a corporate lawyer. Was it, was it a popular career choice amongst peers or, or not really? Um, it was basically, uh, in those days, was where you could get a job initially leaving school if you didn't go to university. You see, when I left Harrow in 1962, probably out of 150 boys that left school, I would suggest to you that 20 went to Oxford and Cambridge, two to Trinity College Dublin, and one to McGill University of Montreal. That was it. So the rest of us either went into the army or we went into the city or our parents, you know, knew people that wanted people to go into their various businesses. So it was, it was a huge privilege. The other thing that was absolutely fantastic in those days, which you can't do today and which I feel extremely sorry for your generation, though you've done very well, James, and I'm pleased for you, is that you lost your job, you got around the corner. And as long as you didn't have your fingers in the till or that you behaved yourself as a decent member of the human race, you were fine. Because business mushroom. And when I started in the city of London, there were probably, I don't know, probably there were 400 stockbrokers. I can tell you that for nothing. And most of them were two or three men operations. I mean, there were the Seabags, the Casados, the David A. Bevan Simpsons, the Dezout and Gordons, and all these sort of people were around, Angel H. Hart and all that sort of thing. But most of them were two or three little men operations. And the banks, well, basically, you had the big banks. You had the, when the big banks were, of course, the merchant banks, the Schroders, the Bearings, the Lazards, the Rempfels, people of them, the Brown Shipkiss, people of that ilk. Goldman Sachs can't spell it. You, they hadn't arrived then. And there were probably about 50 banks in London then. By the end of the 70s, there were 300 trading banks in London. And everybody said, gosh, why is that? The answer was, of course, that the euro dollar market had the biggest impetus followed not by Big Bang, which everybody thinks was, but it was, of course, the abolition of exchange controls in 1980. And when Margaret Thatcher told the world, folks, London's open for business. So, so you had five years at Philip Hill. What followed that? I was in the money department then. And I went to lunch. As usual, I had my first introduction to a bottle of Mouton Cadet. When the bloke said to me, political pieces, would you like to come and join R.P. Martin? which at that time was the leading foreign exchange broker with a sterling operation. 
I was earning nine hundred pounds a year at the time. And they offered to today's money that's twenty 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 two thousand, yeah. very roughly. Yeah. I was earning nine hundred pounds a year and I was offered fifteen hundred pounds plus a bonus. In my first year, uh, I earned three thousand two hundred and fifty pounds, which was in those days astronomical. Bearing in mind, James, that anything above, I think it was 2,300, was 82% tax. Yes. So it sounded great, but there is, But I was I was a rich kid. Yes. I really was. I had a wonderful time. And when I went back to Philip Hill to give my um, notice in to Philip Hill, they offered to round me up to 1,000 pounds. And I suppose very kind. It was a fellow called Robin Dent who actually ended up going on to bearings. And I think, but an interesting episode because it, it does illustrate how life has changed is that I had this long wait um, before getting the offer, uh, offer from uh, R.P. Martin. I didn't really fancy going on in banking. I very much used to follow that cartoon strip in the evening standard called Bristow, Jones, and Barry's in the full court and everything else, and everything was wrong about a bank where there's no communication. I decided to leave, and I was obsessed with the world of theatre and cinema, and I was offered a job by um, Blue Grade, and Bernard Delfont to join their agency. And I said, well, he said, well, I need to tidy up because um, the grade said to me that we need to tidy up one or two things because we were going to be taken over. So Buckingham performance, I from R.P. Martin and accepted it. The following day, Robin Fox, who was James Fox and Eddie Fox's father, ran this agency, rang up and said, I'm so sorry, we are in a position to offer you a job, 2,000 pounds a year. So so I said, well, I need 24 hours to think about this. He said, well, we've taken our time, we've taken our time. So I went back to tell my father. My father was reading the telegram he put down the table. He said, I thought you came home yesterday saying you'd been offered a job at R.P. Martin. I said, yeah, I know, but I haven't signed a contract. He said, no, no, no. Any son of mine says he's going, going. He said, you're going for a year or pack your bags and get out. And I looked at him and he said, and I'm serious. Can you imagine that today? Yeah. So that was a sort of the way life was established, really. And then, and then you had, um, from what I understand, you, you you had a kind of an entrepreneurial streak in you. You went and set up a number of your own businesses. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I felt at RP Martin the management was terrible. There were some very nice people there. The management didn't have a clue. In point of fact, I won't name him because he's one of the most delightful men I've ever known, but he had a quite a drink problem. And... 11 o'clock every morning, we used to have a gentleman there called Mr. Moses, who used to arrive with a silver platter with a large gin and tonic on it. And he handed it to this chap who literally with two hands took it and tipped it down. And we straightened out after that. But that was really what was it. And I always felt that I could do things better. And if somebody said to me, what would you write on your epitaph, on your death that you'd like people to remember you by? I have no doubt, James, what I want is the grass is not greener on the other side, is that if you disagree with somebody and you don't like the way they're running their business, do everything in your power to try and change it rather than throwing the towel in, going off and doing your own thing, which is what I did, which I did with a lot of fun, a lot of enjoyment, with a huge amount of incompetence. I admit that. How did, how did you? Well, how did the business start? We, we, you know, did you have a partner? How did no, you, how did you just, this? A couple of guys that were in Alfred Martin with me felt the same, so we went off. And not one of the three of us was good enough to actually say, this is how we run a business, this is how we do it, these are the people we employ. 
a lot of the time we ended up employing our friends. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I did that two or three times. And I ended up the last time doing it quite successfully. I worked in point of fact for a company called um, Goldstone Company, which was part of John Gunn's Exco. And they were not as far as I was concerned. I mean, there's a lovely story that if you time to indulge me, which I think is absolutely wonderful. When I was at Exco working for John Gunn, who is a man I admired and liked very much indeed, and I also liked the person I worked for in uh, Goldsworth's a fellow called John Morton. We did fall out, but I did. I admired his sort of cavalier instincts. Anyway, I had a phone call from Michael Spencer, who just finished in, at Drexel Burnham Lambert, which he learned an awful lot, but it was a bit, not a good company. You remember Michael Milkins, you know, and he ended up going to jail and the rest of it. Michael, I'd never met, said I'd like to have lunch with you. So he's the most confident, the most yeah, organized person I have ever met. He doesn't make mistakes, which is really irritating. Yeah. But he's very good. He said, I will make you a fortune. So go on. And he worked out what was going to happen with the derivative market and the equity markets and also the debt markets and the rest of it. And he said, this is how we're going to do it. And I'm sitting there like a lapping dog, never having heard of this, to any great degree, because the company I worked for wasn't outlooking at all. Yes, yeah. So I ran off, very, very excited, and went to see all the powers that be at Exco and said, look, this is what we do. And Michael Spencer did it over there. So they just looked at me, playing it, said, we can do all that. I said, I don't think you can. So anyway, I went back to Michael, expressed my deep sorrow the rest is history. Yeah. I mean, there he is, the greatest money broker. That yes, I cap it. Great, I cap Of course. And, you know, hugely, other other businesses elsewhere. And he's a man that I've always admired, you know, but this was the kind of area. Where, so out of that, I left there and set up another company, which was bought by Neil Trust. <laughs> Again, on my part, poor judgment, because Neil Balfour, who owned Neil Trust, was a very nice man, very clever man. But he kept writing paper when he'd taken people over rather than using money. And I don't need to go into it. Down it went. And I left and went to a couple of other issues, smaller places, which didn't work out. But I had a lot of fun at that company that York Trust bought and York Trust went down because um, it ended up joining forces with an American company called Prebon and a Japanese company called Yamani Prebon. Yamani. And it was quite a force in London, but we had financial difficulties. Yes. And we had two gentlemen came in from Savoy Montague to sort it out. And I was given the unprecedented job, which I absolutely loathed, of going around the entire staff asking them to take a 25% pay cut yeah. uh, on people who were on contracts. Was it, was it easier to set up financial services business back then with, with kind of you know, lower regu regulatory loopholes and, and barriers to entry or not? Yes, it was... Uh, it, if you go back to the um, 70s, yes, but by the time of Big Bang, things had straightened out quite a lot, and you did have requirements, financial requirements that you had to put up by the Bank of England. And the Bank of England was actually regulating it with to a thing called the Foreign Exchange and Currency Deposit Brokers Association. And it did actually make a very for a very organized market. And I met some extraordinary people at the Bank of England over a period of time who were clever, insightful, people who actually got their f fingernails dirty, the cold face, they got to know people, not necessarily chairman or chief executives of banks, but people who actually worked in the money areas, the foreign exchange department. It was 
it was really good because you could actually look them straight in the face and say, this is the problem. Mm. One of the most people that I've admired more than anybody else who I met several times was Paul Tucker, who was, um, of course, deputy to Mervyn King at the Bank of England. And Paul knew everybody in the discount market. He knew everyone at all the major um, guilt brokers. He knew all the money brokers. He knew exactly how many beans made for, and he had an intellect the side of the universe. Great humility. Yes. And a very decent bloke. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've, I've read that you've described yourself as a good builder of businesses, but, but a not so good manager. What, what do you mean by that? I, I thought I had very good vision. Um, and, you know, I could see when it was going to be fruitful operation, when a business was going to be very good. It was when times got tough, I was pretty weak. And I was not good at firing people. I was not good at cutting people back. I wasn't good at saying, you don't serve a useful purpose in this place, I'm afraid you've got to go. And also, if I'm honest with you, I was miles too democratic. I mean, all the little companies that I never heard more than anybody else in the company. And do you know what? By modern day standards, I jolly well shouldn't. Because it was my idea. It was my company. You know the rest of it. But I never did. Big mistake. Do I sleep well at night? Yeah. Doesn't bother me. Would I say that I've had a cracking good career and that I've really made a massive contribution to the city of London? No. Gosh, I've had fun. And I wouldn't change anything for what gave me between say 1967 and 2015, I wouldn't change any of it. Should we, should we, I mean, is it probably a good, a good lead on to this is, is the highs and lows of your career. Now, you know, I don't think it'd be appropriate to, to start in any other place than Cantor's in 2001. Can you tell us a little bit about that day? And, and from what I understand, you were, you were at the Connaught Hotel having lunch when you were told that the, the plane had hit the North Tower and, and, and it had, had, you know, been devastating for the business. Can you tell us a little bit about that day? You're right. We were at the Connaughts. Um, we were there with Mike Dillon from Labrooks and Nick Chain from Master Race Course. We were discussing the Christmas meeting. And one of my very best friends is a fellow called Graham Cowdery, Colin Cowdery's younger son. And he was a serious practical joker and a very good myth. <laughs> and very, very sadly died a couple of years ago. And I miss him terribly. But anyway, he, I left my Opal on the on the lunch table, which I shouldn't have done, but I did, and it went off. I could see it was great, and he said, get your backside back to the office. A plane's gone into the North Tower, uh, the World Trade Center, and I said, that is extremely bad taste. And it brings back, David, I'm not joking. So the lunch was obviously terminated immediately. I walked back to the office, saw one of those shops, where there were lots of television centers, and you could just see this plane diving into the thing. I got to the office. Everybody was piling out. Floods of tears. Terrible. And um, it. I went home and I spent the whole night just watching television because I knew we'd been wiped out in New York. Um, the 92nd to the 95th floor, the planes went in. We were just above it. Some of the recorded messages that came through, you know, about tell my wife, my lover, and oof, I can't be get emotional if I do, was terrible. And um, the one thing that did happen was the hard Blutnik, who was chief executive of Cannabis Fitzgerald, didn't go to work that day because he took his son to his first day of school. And 
we also had he also had the foresight to have all the businesses um accounts and um information duplicated in london which was a tremendous and the other reason that it was poignant was that New York was going into a bit of a recession. So after that, it fell out there were quite a lot of good people around. But to keep it uh, in focus, I went to work the following day, and you would have thought that Brad Pitt was there for an opening of a film. I mean, there was every television company imaginable, not just in UK, German, CNN were there, CNBC were there, everybody was there, Bloomberg, BBC, all the radio stations, Channel 4, Channel 8, you name it, it was there. So I didn't think anything of it. I was doing bits and pieces of that sort of thing, but I'd only just started doing a bit of media, and you know, numbers very limited. So we went into the office, and we realised, of course, that um, markets were going to be closed for a while, which they were. And everybody was chatting, and everybody was very down for problems. And um, somebody came up to me and said, "What about those guys out there? Um, you know, someone's got to deal with them." And I said, "Well, they're going to speak to Liam Matis, who was the chief executive." And he was just in bits, which is understandable because he knew them all. And I only knew maybe 30 people in New York, you know, the rest, but he knew them all. So you can imagine the damage. So his number two, Shawnin, wasn't having it. And, um, and I didn't blame him for the same reason. So somebody had better speak to him and he said, well, you better go out there. I said, I'm, said, I'm neither management appointee, I'm not a director. So it would be entirely inappropriate. And um, anyway, I was bullied. So out I went. I was there for probably two and a half hours and trying not to cry, if you know, and um, just trying to tell people that they were angry and they were going to come back at these people and that we were going to rise like the phoenix from the ashes and trying to explain the emotions that people felt and the rest of it. Terrible day. How, how big was the London operation versus the, the US operation? We had about 220 in London. Uh, uh, Kansas, I think, was 1,200 worldwide. I think New York had about 700. Well, we know they had, um, I forget, it was 650. 58, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and the, we um, just two or three were out of the office. That's all. There was a lovely fellow called Brian Meehan, who was a economist, and he worked out of Westchester all his life. He decided to come into the office, do his... Economics and his uh, and his presentations as day, good night, Vienna. Just remember, I I find it totally totally remarkable that something like that, and yet the business kept going and 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 the duplication, resilience, the duplication, yeah, the duplication was really important, and I can't express James enough the sense of anger, resentment. Desperate loss for people, friends, you know, and people were completely galvanized, you know, and they were not going to have it. And we had some wonderful um, donations from people. I don't mean money, but there was a lot of money donations, but a guy rang me up who I knew in Tokyo called Lawrence Holyoke, known as Fonty. Lawrence Aurelian. Um, quite a bit older than you. And he just said... Um, you can have my services for nothing for a year. And there was that kind of bonhomie that was around and other people who weren't necessarily money brokers, but they worked in the city saying, you know, if I can help in any way, you know, even if you need it, gladly help. And there was a real sense of 
purpose because business was, you know, not going to be allowed to fold because of terrorism. And I just say, it was, I was incredibly proud to actually watch this for a period of, say, well, I watched it, the recovery process over a three-year period, but I was actually with Cantor Index and BGC for 12 years. So to see the business built up was a, was an incredible, just an incredible achievement. I can't believe it. the way. Culture kind of created in that aftermath was, was one of extreme resilience and, and a sense of maybe real purpose that wasn't, wasn't there before. It's, it's hard to, because the, the, um, management style, uh, wouldn't be mine, but it worked. Management style was basically, uh, Howard Lutnick from New York decided everything from corporate finance to paperclips. So though Sean Lynn in London was an extremely leader and well-liked by the staff, did very well. There were no meetings. You just did as you were told. And they were very good at figures and the rest didn't work out how things were done. And it, if I'd been 35 or 32 when this happened or something of that age, not sure I would have liked it, but being mature, should we put it? Um, I, I cope with it. And also the fact that you're not part of the management. All I was doing was getting out, uh, making a new career for myself, of trying, trying to give a good account of the company, of why, what it was doing, what it was about, making market comment and the rest of it. I had nothing but help from them. It was never a problem. And I, I shall always be very grateful for it. But it is it was a controversial firm. But I think it's this controversy came through what I would describe as style of management. Very American, not UK based. And as you as you probably know, most of the great UK or the great money brokers were actually UK based. And and it you know, it's all very well sitting there being critical of somebody saying, Well, I wouldn't do it that way. But then they worked. And they were the paymasters. So there you go. David, tell me a little bit about the, the, the moments you look back on as massive career highs. I think the massive the, the one that really struck me more than anything else was the opportunities that Big Bang were going to offer, a money broker. Forget Goldman, forget Salomons, forget Deutsche Bank, all these other people who were obviously ahead of the curve than I was. But having decided that um, Exco was not going to offer me what I needed, to actually know that once Thatcher and Jeffrey Howe and John Biffin and Nigel Lawson had decided that you know, we need to abolish exchange controls and give the city of London its head. That was huge. And there were 300 banks, as I think I told you, James, before, by the end of 1970, by the end of the 70s, there were about 300 banks in London. I mean, so many banks that people had never heard of, like Bank Shares, First City National Bank of Houston. I mean, I could reel off hundreds of names that don't exist now, if you know what I mean. Uh, North Carolina Bank, all kinds of people like that. I mean, and I don't do it because they made a big controversial national bank of Chicago. Like you ask them today in the street, never heard of them. Continental Illinois, all these sort of Irving Trust Company of New York, they don't exist anymore. But they had a big role to play. And once it became clear that the derivative market was going to rule everything, the opening of the London um, Financial Futures Exchange to me was the pinnacle. That was where you knew markets were going to be professionally and efficiently rigged. 
you won't like that comment, but you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, 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 for sure. But when the market makers come in in the morning saying, I don't like this market, I'm going to take it down, or I like it, I'm going to... It's always done through the futures market. And the futures market, which is a derivative, just for listeners who don't know, is fundamentally the most influential derivative by a country market. So it became clear to me that stockbrokers, uh, stock jobbers, money brokers, bond brokers were going to be extremely busy hopefully extremely rich at the end of it. And so we put a team together, bearing in mind that we probably as a money broker at the time could probably be described as Mickey Mouse PLC. So we didn't have the resources that other people had. So we couldn't go around paying big bucks. Even though you knew, look, if I get this bloke in here, I know I'm going to do really well with A, B, C, D, E. Because you're fighting the likes of Michael Spencer and other people like that who was going to say, go away, you silly little boy, you know, I clean. So you had to choose people that were going to be, A, going to be big, people who had great relationships, people who could sit down at the table with a glass of wine, not four bottles of wine, but a glass of wine, be very good company and be outgoing and, and actually make sense. So you, you, you put, it's like a jigsaw together. And you used to put it together and I used to work with it couple of people, I mean, one of my colleagues who I admire enormously still, was virtually stone deaf, which for a money broker is astonishing. A fellow called Anthony Llewellyn Davis, and he made with me the greatest contribution to the company because he had a really solid head of business on it. And he didn't, he didn't do emotion, whereas I would do emotion quite, quite decent size, if you know what I mean. He would just be a hand on your shoulder and say, no, come on. Let's get back to reality. And the combination of having people from different walks of life and from different, you know, different characters. And it is like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. So that was a huge high for me. And 1987, 1988, I unfortunately was born 10 years too early. I never cleaned up. I didn't resent it because I had so much fun doing what I was doing and I would never be allowed to be leeway to do what I did then now. Um, and it was extraordinary. I mean, the market before that was extraordinary, like even the Bank of England knew. But, you know, foreign exchange markets, you can borrow points. So, like a National Bank of Hungary used to garage stuff. Chase Manhattan, the bank, this is foreign exchange, not money market stuff. Various other people used to garage, and you'd say you had points, and as long as you kept, Eddie George at the time was in charge of the foreign exchange market. He knew about it. It was a gent's way of behaving. And if he thought you'd bank too many points at XYZ Bank, you bring on a you need to get rid of this. And I remember once at RP Martin, um, there's a chap, big cockney bloke, big moustache, called Roger Mahoney, probably as an individual, the best broker I've ever seen. I should imagine he ran out of steam the way he used to work. And I can't use the Agnes Anderson thing, but they got into serious trouble doing some Swiss franc, dollar Swiss franc. They were way offside, like a big figure. And he just sat down at 11 o'clock and everyone was thinking about going out at 11.30 to have a drink, you know. And he slammed the phone down and, thing, and he said, none of you blank, 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 blank people are getting out of here until we pay this lot back. Do I make myself clear? He stood there. Did it. Do you, do you think you would have, if he were starting now in the city, do you think you would have enjoyed yourself? I mean, you, you speak incredibly fondly about your your kind of 60-year career in the city. Do you think you would have enjoyed it as much if you were starting now? Yeah, it? because A, I don't have the intellect, I don't have the education, 
I don't understand algorithms. I don't understand technology. I mean, I, very basic stuff, James, but very basic. And I wouldn't have had the mentality for it. I'm a people's person. So if you're in a bank of rows stuff at Goldman Sachs or wherever it may be, or Deutsche Bank, the rest of it, you know, knowing what you have to do, knowing what the algorithms tell you have to do, undoing your position, not because you want to, because the machine tells you that's not me. Um, I'm all about, you know, talking to my clients, them trusting me. Hopefully I trust them, which I do, which obviously I did, otherwise they wouldn't have remained clients of mine. And doing stuff accordingly. I was, I would describe myself as a pre-average performer. But for the companies I worked for, which were never the biggest or the best, I did okay. And that's because I think I had the ability um, to be able to talk to people. Um, didn't matter whether they were chief executives, chairmen, senior politicians, didn't matter. And that's where I was good. I mean, we had, when we sent up our first company, our second company was called London Deposit Agencies, which was eventually bought by Olsons, which became part of Exco. We were pretty average. We were in Wilson Street, the break, dealing with, we had a huge round table, nothing, not even a picture on the wall, nothing. And I said, we need to get some credence and importance. So um, I set out to um, invite serious politicians into lunch. And people said to me, do you know these people? I said, no, but I've got more from them than Brighton Pier. You have to. So we had Harold Wilson in twice. And my first lunch was the worst one of the lot. He had no humor and huge intercepts. A fellow you won't know, James, because he was a fellow called John Biffitt, who was first secretary to the Treasury, to um, Jeffrey Howe at the time. And they were obsessed with the measurement of money supply. And I couldn't understand this. So I invited him in, Coldfish. Uh, Perfectly likable, but coldfish. So I started asking for the trim. We'd smoke salmon, be the trimmings, you know, the rest of it. The first mouthful, he said, I said, I was going to ask you about money. He just put his knife and fork down, chewing his mouthful, smoked salmon. He said, Do you know who I am? I said, Well, I think so. He said, Well, you tell me. Some more, you Tory member for Oswestry. Well, first secretary of the Treasury in charge from public expenditure. Ah, you've got it. You understand. Yeah. He said, I know about as much about money supply as I can get on my thumbnail. He said, you need to ask Nigel Lawson. Uh, can we talk about something sensible? You can imagine. So we got all, a lot of banking customers round the slumped, unimpressed, as you can imagine. So I knew because I used to play rugby with him at the same club, not at the same level, with Robin Butler, who was, of course, that was, you know, um, cabinet secretary. I said, Robin, would you come to lunch? And he said, yes, he would. And he won't mind me saying this now. And I asked him about money supply, and he goes, "Not my strength. But he said, I'll find somebody in the treasury, and I'll send him. So the following couple of weeks later, this young lad comes around, very well-spoken. He's wearing hush puppies, chinos, a sports jacket, and a tight half-mast. Hardly what you would describe city stuff, but treasury stuff with Evening Standard stuck in his pocket, you know. Lovely guy. And he gave us a, a huge amount of enjoyment because he never, he couldn't believe it. it was Christmas in the city having a beautiful lunch, you know, and the rest of it. So we go through, his, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so why don't you put buildings there? Yeah, 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 yeah. How can you measure my effect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he looked at us, well, well. He said, well, first and foremost, one, two, three, four, five, six, you're right on all point. 
Yes, those points have been put to the represent people in government, not interested. But that's the kind of thing that we decided to build our very modest reputation upon getting people in that were really interesting. Like Ken Livingston came to lunch one day just after he and the two Northern Irish people, you know, um, Guinness and um, Daniel Countryman. And he took huge abuse around the table, but he just wore it and he loved it. And, you know, we used to have trade unionists in, all kinds of people, but it gave the company a little bit of credence. And the market started to think from, instead of Mickey Mouse PLC, well, actually, we're on bad outfit. Yeah. Should we, should we talk a little bit about young people going into the city now? Now, I, I, I've read some of your comments around university and whether you think there's, there's huge value in university as a young person joining the city or whether, you know, in fact, practical hands-on experience like, like yourself um, is, is really the way to go. And, 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 you know, especially when you, especially when you say that, you, you know, your first five years were, were, you know, you learned more in those first five years than in the following 50 years. Do you think there's a place for, for, for skipping university and going straight into the city or, or do you think there's a place for it? I think um, it's, it's not clear, but I think, I mean, I've, I've, one of the most joyous things I've done, James, over the years is, is go to schools. And I've been to Wapper Grammar School and I went to um, a school in um, Wilston a long ago uh, to speak to the head of maths, asked me to go and talk about um, economics and um, the coming into the city of London. Very ethnic, both schools, voracious appetites to learn, really want to get on and do well and great. And there were terrific conversations. And they were anguishing whether to go to university or to go straight into a job. And, you know, and I said to them, well, it depends if you are going to be a bank manager in the true sense of the word, you want to go to university. But if you're going to be a trader uh, and you're going to be somebody who is an analyst or something like that, then I would strongly recommend if somebody will take a chance with you, but that's the problem yeah. now is getting employers to get, is to, get to, is to get them to take a chance. And, you know, the number of people that I've met, friends of my son's, children and the rest who find it really hard to get work. Um, it's not easy. So in some respects, university is the right course of action. People coming from university to the city of London to do jobs like derivative trading or foreign exchange trading or bullion or commodities, whatever it is, they very often become square pegs and round holes. They're not the right people. I mean, we were took a leaf out of Michael Spencer's book. Because uh, the thing why Michael's been so successful is that he employed a graded person way above the average. And I don't mean public school boys. I mean just boys with intellect. So we decided, oh, well, that's interesting. So we sent off to Oxford and we interviewed 70 people. Got four applicants. Um, one was superb. The other, the other three were utterly hopeless including somebody who became chief executive, Anthony Jenkins, who won't mind because he said to me after four glasses of wine in the pub, I can't do this job. What happened to his career? Up, up, up. So it is very difficult choosing the right person for the right job, but I have extreme doubt 
about university. Um, I believe that supreme intellects should go to university, but I have also uh, an interest that we should have sort of qualities for people who are going to learn to be engineers, going to learn to be carpenters, going to learn to be electricians. I mean, I mean, you're an electrician. You, know. you can make an absolute fortune. And they should be in, you know, college, technical colleges. And I think the government needs to have a complete look. I know they make a fortune out of overseas people coming, you know, from China, from India, the rest of it going to university. That's fine. But as regards our own, we need to focus far more getting what I call people going to university unnecessarily. I mean, the number of my, uh, friends of my daughters uh, who've gone to university come out and all they can find is a clerk's job at Mabiba. I mean, and how <clears throat> deflating is that? And that's because you're not doing it properly. Do you think you have a lot, a lot, a lot less characters and big personalities in the city nowadays than you may have 30, 40, 50 years ago? I don't, think, I don't even be as open as that. I think, to be honest with you, that some of the quality of people at the investment banks, the lawyers and the accountants are very high, very high quality. Um, I think um, the boardroom stuff that is decided on where people are going to do corporate finance, M&A activity, IPOs and the rest of it, pretty good. Um, what I think is not good is the way that people are selected to actually trade. And also... You know, I laugh the way cultures change. I was standing on the corner of Cannon Street and um, Queen Victoria Street the other day, and I thought, I was waiting for somebody for 10 minutes. And I noticed that 20% of the people that walked by me didn't wear a suit, that no more than 20% of the people were clean shaven. I don't mind, James. It's just changed yes, yeah. dramatically. And what I describe as the bon viveur that got to know his broker or his client over lunch or the rest of it is gone. And people are wearing spectacles much stronger than even the ones I've got, just staring at computers, doing stuff, the rest of it. I don't think they get the joy. They get the rewards if they're any good in spades. So if your idea of earning somewhere between 200,000 and 5 million pounds a year or whatever it might be by staring at a screen and you give your family a wonderful life, provided you don't end up in the divorce court, which you almost certainly will, because when you get home on a Friday night, you're absolutely pooped and you've got nothing to offer the family and you're absolutely bushed and your wife is totally off with you, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But the people I admire say do that from the age of, say, 24, to 40 and say, thank you very much indeed, and come off and be a member of the human race, they get deeper from me because that's what it's all about. Do you think, do you think London's becoming less attractive or, or financial services London are becoming less attractive or not? It's less attractive because we've got ourselves into a, a spiral. Now, I believe in only it's temporary, is that um, the taxation scene is too draconian the opportunities and the encouragement government's giving to people to come to London to invest. As you know, billions and billions have left these shores of investment, and that's because people don't feel that they're getting the incentives. I don't really buy, James, the New York bit um, on the fact that, yes, of course, Arm, Flutter, CRH, and all these other companies, and Pound to go to New York. 
because they're multi-billion pound people and also the United States values their companies at about 30% higher than we do over here. And also they've got access to far greater funds of money for investment. So if somebody wants to raise $2 billion, whatever it is, it's done. Whereas over here, I would say it's a struggle, but it's not as easy. But there's so much innovation over here, so much good small companies that get taken over, become big companies, going to be attracted to doing other things. Personally, I'm terribly excited. I mean, I'll be pushing up daisies before they, they're doing it properly. But to say that the opportunity in this country is not here is just not right. It is here. And the environment at the moment is terrible because of Ukraine, because of COVID, because of poor government, because of inflation. Um, all these things, you know, I'm not a knocker and are all trying to draw political, um, you know, capital out of this. It, we are in a situation why this has happened. Do you think it turns? What changes things? What changes things is that the moment that, and I think you'll find in six months down the line, when the government knows time's running out, and that if they don't provide incentives for people, you know, to come to London to do business, and if Jeremy Hunt and uh, she soon like stop looking at the country, the country's balance sheet, saying, oh my God, you know, look how much we borrowed. Look at the United States, $31.4 trillion, 99.6% of GDP. And it'll get worse, no question of any doubt about it. And they have to take a gamble. Not a, a, a ridiculous gamble, but a gamble. That means, please don't give me this 25% corporation tax. It's just nonsense. And what it brings in, you have to, you know, being a businessman, you have to spend a bit to get a bit. And that's got to go. And incentives uh, as regards investing in small companies absolutely at the top of the tree because the kind of business that you do, the kind of business that I'm associated with with Axis, we are reliant on companies coming forward saying, need capital. And if that happens, I'm offering why? Center of the universe. English is the international language of the world. Our legal system, our accounting system is better than anywhere else. And I'll tell you what, we're better than anyone. Quite right, quite right. Um, David, I want to talk about your, your extracurricular life. You know, you've had a, a remarkable career spanning six decades um, that's, that's been filled with, with, with football, with racing, with cricket. In fact, I think I read somewhere that I love being a hooligan under the disguise of a gentleman. So I'm not sure anyone listening to this interview would use the word hooligan yet, but, but tell me about that. I get lost in sport. It's it's my it's my big retreat. So um, I'm a bit of season ticket holder at Fulham for 25 years. Nobody knows the ups and downs of the game more than I do. I get very emotionally involved, and I occasionally behave uh, verbally quite badly. And it, I just love it. I go with my wife, who puts up with it, you know. And we've got the same people behind us giving it's the same old banter and thing and it makes me laugh and it makes it's very funny and I'm very involved in it and I'll carry on doing it until I drop if you know what I mean, because it's just part of me my cricket is it's the greatest game in the world um I played club cricket at a reasonable standard uh, up until 1970 and a bad standard up to about 1985 1990 and there is no greater sport for me for making friends I would say 90% of my friends have got an interest in cricket. I've always loved it. Um, I played for the old boys. I played for Hampstead. I played for lots of other wandering clubs over the years. My racing started basically when I 
was used to go on a cricket tour to Yorkshire every year, and we used to end up at shocking places like Redcar and um, Pontefract on days off. Well, you can't think of two worse racecourses if you tried. Absolutely loved it. And so when I stopped playing cricket, I had to do something for a weekend. So with some friends, we decided to buy a couple of horses, and we had a lot of fun. And we've had uh, three Grand National runners, and never come better than eighth, but loved every moment of it. Had huge fun, made a lot of friends. Racing people, particularly National Hunt people, are lovely people because they're good losers. And it's a great, it's a great day out. And nothing gives me greater pleasure than to look at a horse and then see it run quite well and sort of pick it out and see how it's going to improve and where we're going to be in three months' time and whether it's ready to win. I would have, used to have a very good friend. I'd known terribly well, but he became a very good called John Sutcliffe. Yes. And John was what I call a gambler, racing gambler's trainer. Marvellous man. Funny, rude, truculent, difficult, awkward. And his main owner was Albert Finney. And he used to, if you looked at, if you followed racing, uh, John's runner starting in April would be duck egg, duck egg, duck egg, duck egg, duck egg. And you'd think, come July, the sun's high over the yard arm. And he put off a coup, and that's how he made not many horses in his stable, 35, 40. But they were always with interesting people like Albert Finney, you know. And Pat Edry was a great friend of his, so was Lester Pig, and he just knew the right people. And he, he was an awkward devil, you know. And I met him at a cocktail party one day, and I, we were sort of looking at our feet, you know, what to say. And I said, Have you got any runners next week, uh, John? He said, Yeah. He said, I've got a seller at, new, at um, Yarmouth, that's how I'm not interested in that. I said, you've got a horse entered called Bono's Best in a, in a, in a handicap, we're in a conditions race. The sad on the evening, oh, I said, don't worry about this. He said, I'm just trying to get the horse handicap. This wretched thing absolutely bolted up at 16 to 1, you see. So we're about two weeks later. I said, thanks a bunch, John. And he just looked at me, he said, put a horse with me and I'll give you some information. But there was a little bit of Anglo-Saxon terminology with yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And do you know what? He's absolutely spot <laughs> Why should other people, when he's lined these people up, give me the benefit of uh, inside information? But that's what racing people are like. They're they're very good fun, and you know it's a fool's uh, it's a fool's game. If I had my life over again, would I bu- would I buy horses only if I won the lottery? Absolute waste of money, but loved it. Yeah, David. If you had to distill your 60 ish years in the city into one piece of advice for your younger self, what would that be? Gosh, that's a very big question. Um, I'm trying to have more time to think about it. Um, I think, basically, I would ask my sons or any of my friends, I think I told you this thing, is that the grass is not greener on the other side. It really isn't. And I think the mistakes I've made is moving job too frequently um, without actually... Um, trying to make the necessary changes that I think would have improved things. So based on that is that not everybody's going to get into management, not everybody's going to go into the type of job that is going to have management or if you do, you'll be managing yourselves. But my advice to anybody is that the most important thing that you could possibly do in your career is to make sure that your interpersonal skills are immaculate. Have time for everybody. Don't ever be dismissive. Talk to everybody. You'd be amazed. People will be amazed what they can learn from bothering to have a conversation. And for goodness sakes, 
whenever the possibility, switch your Richard mobile phone off. Fantastic. David, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on.